Hi there. Welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. What comes next? Did you guys see the Guardian piece? Bolsonaro. No, I just wanted to put a message on you. know what's happening? Yeah, well, it's titillating. It's a, it's an interesting article because it's kind of titillating, but it is useful in how kind of it, you know, has a kind of it's a bit like you know, cancer found in Italy. No? So, 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 I was going to say, I was going to say, I deeply mistrust without even reading any Guardian article on fascism or the far right because it's it's such a nation. One of the standout differences between the U.S. and other Western countries is the constitutionally protected right for U.S. citizens to possess firearms, ranging from handguns to powerful automatic weapons. We're constantly reminded of this in the mass shootings that regularly bedevil American life, as well as in significantly higher rates of violent crime. The clash over the right to bear arms is one of the core lines of contention between the right and the left in the United States, and one which seems immovable and insurmountable, a fixture of the political landscape. The left strongly wish to enact greater gun control, while the right insist on protecting the Second Amendment, which guarantees the right to bear arms. It's a debate about which many people outside the US also feel that they have a stake in, particularly on the left, reflecting, if nothing else, the enormous influence and appeal that US society holds across the world. Gun control is the topic we're talking about today, although we're going to do it from a slightly different angle. We're speaking to Reed Kane, a senior member of the Socialist Party USA, who also supports the right to bear arms and is opposed to gun control, although Reed will be speaking in a personal capacity. What's at stake in the debate over gun control? This is what we'll be trying to understand today. All right, hello listeners. Today it is myself, Alex Hokuli. We've got Phil Cunliffe in Canterbury in the UK and uh, Ben Fogel here uh, with me in Sao Paulo. How's it? Um, so first things first, um, any news? Phil, you've, got a, you've just written a blog on Medium about the university strikes which have happened over the past month or so in the UK. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I thought the blog was really good. We're going to link it in afterwards. Yeah, so it was a few personal reflections on the end of this, the end of what was called the Great University Strike of 2018 by Descent Magazine. Uh, the the strike or the industrial action officially ended on Friday, the 13th of April, which is when the result of a ballot was released. The ballot was the union balloted its members on whether or not they should accept the offer from the employers, um, the employers' association being Universities UK. Uh, and the offer was about a mounting a so-called joint expert panel comprising people nominated by the union, people nominated by the employers, to reevaluate, reevaluate, revalue the pension scheme, which is at the core of the dispute, the industrial dispute between the employers and the union. So it was a disappointing. It was a personal. It was a personal, a very kind of bitter disappointment for me personally that the industrial action came to an end because I felt we folded too early. Uh, it was the largest, so in the union, it was the largest um, turnout in any union in any union vote that the UCU, the University and College Union, has ever had. And it was 60 to, roughly 60 to 30, I think, 60, 20, 20 odd, but nearly 30, 60 to accept the employer's offer and um, nearly 30 opposed, 30% opposed. Um, so and, and you uh, and you kind of blame the union leadership a lot for for accepting this and then terminating yeah, the industrial the action union too early. leadership yeah the union leadership has been um has conducted has just conducted itself with ignominy and disgrace manipulating the ballot process um 
trying to terrify members essentially into thinking that there was no way to get a better deal uh controlling so what was interesting was in the week running up to the end to the close of the ballot multiple emails were sent out by the union leader sally hunt to members which was interesting because it seemed like desperation so because she kept on firing out these emails it seemed effectively like they were counting the votes as they came in and they were desperately worried that they would lose they would lose this because it would be the second vote then that they'd lost. They lost an earlier vote where they put an employer's offer to the union. They lost it. Um, so anyway, it seemed you know it's a they it's been a disgraceful it's been a disgraceful um, run by a union leadership that is deeply entrenched, is fearful of industrial action, fearful of its members, effectively desperate to you know treats the union kind of as a stage army in its negotiations with the employers which it desperately wants to wind down quickly so they can get back to civilized conversations and negotiations without the um without the inconvenience of having union members involved or mobilized i guess on uh, the anyways, i guess on the pop on the plus side i mean looking at it a little bit more positively um it was quite an unprecedented thing as you said um does this do you think it kind of signals a, a kind of greater um, mobilization or militancy amongst academics? Again, maybe more broadly than that. I mean, the last so cause the last was... big the last big kind of strike, at least from from uh, professionals or kind of middle class um, workers, has been uh, was the junior doctors' strike in in the yeah. UK. So, I mean, is there a kind of radicalization of of the petty bourgeoisie in England, if you want to put it that way? Um, the well, they're not. It's not. I mean. It's not petty bourgeoisie, it's the kind of liberal professional classes, I think. Um, and they are, I think there is kind of a greater degree of um, politicization, perhaps. But it's more, so, I mean, this is the astonishing fact about the great university strike is that one month of on-off industrial action blew the stats on strikes out the water. So more days were lost to strike action in the last six weeks of industrial action then were lost over the whole two years over the whole uk economy over the last two years wow uh, which is an astonishing it's an astonishing statistic so it shows you just how um limited industrial militancy and labor disputes are in the uk economy and also the astonishing remarkable fact that it was academics of all people who suddenly um pushed up those those days lost to strike as a result of industrial action you know utterly unexpected i mean you think it would be i don't know tube drivers or i don't know train drivers or something you know so so that's it's all fairly unusual and unexpected um and i suppose i drew a few observations from it but one thing that stayed with me was um so one thing that you saw in say you know the kind of the times coverage of the industrial dispute the daily mail coverage of the industrial dispute it was something that was put to us on the picket line and also stuff that you saw on social media was this um so the dispute was about pensions and people would say well you know everyone's pensions crap my pension is crap why should you guys get a good pension and the thing that made me the thing that kind of struck me about this was that it's a leveling argument which is to say it's the argument that the left, that is traditionally associated with the left, right? Pulling everybody down, everyone's got to be equal, everyone, everything's got to be egalitarian, equal, you know, every outcome has to be the same. Yeah. Uh, so, but it wasn't made by people, you know, it was made by people opposing the strike, people who are suspicious of the industrial action, people who are hostile to it. So essentially people opposed to um, industrial action and striking. And it was on the other side that you heard this argument. And so it made me think if that's, you know, if that's the best that people can come up with, 
it must surely, you know, kind of ordinary people, um, and you read the comments beneath the kind of co the comments on the newspaper articles online and so on. And if that's the best that people can come up with, it just strikes me that it must speak to the bankruptcy of contemporary neoliberalism. Yeah, it can't offer anything but equal misery. This is the this and is the sadomasochism. Really this thing. is the sadomasochism of neoliberalism. Yeah. Certainly after the crisis. I mean, I think it's Mark Fisher talks about in Capitalist Reason. But I mean, just I've got one observation about that. It's very interesting to me that you point out this is the the most strike days lost of the last two years. It points to two things. One, uh, which I think is really unprecedented historically, I think with the um, Corbyn Labour Party, one, it's the first time I know of a Social Democratic Party that somewhat renewed itself to the left. And two, it's renewed itself to the left without an uptake in labor militancy. It's the first time there's been a Social Democratic upsurge of anywhere I know, uh, along with perhaps the United States and the Bernie Sanders, without a upsurge in the labor movement, which... Uh, is kind it's of, a really good point. It's really uh, unprecedented yeah. historically. Both, both, both of those things, and uh, probably something we should talk about at some stage because it really streaks to, uh, for instance, as much as I'm a full-blown uh, Corbynite, when Corbyn gets in government, he won't have the union movement that's grown to be an ally to will face down what looks like a very hostile uh, branch of the deep state, for lack of a better term, and capital. Well, so, I mean, further to that, they're also, I mean, the union, the Tories made, um, you know, they won more working class voters. Uh, they made inroads into working class constituencies, while um, Labour made inroads into uh, middle class, upper middle class constituencies, Canterbury and Kensington, in um, in the most recent general election. And the growth of, um, of Labour Party membership has been among, you know, middle class student types. So, I mean, it's a good, I mean, it's a genuine, it's a genuine issue. And... Um, whether or not, you know, it's interesting. I mean, and certainly my hope in participating in the industrial action was, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I I want my pension, absolutely. <laughs> and I want better wages and I want all of those things. But I also hoped, I did also hope that it could perhaps be a beacon um, for other, you know, for other people who might be considering what they might do about their crappy working conditions. Um, and so I guess we'll see, because if, you know, if academics can do it, um, you know, why shouldn't, I guess other people might think, well, why the hell if those middle class um, so-and-sos can do it, why can't I? Why shouldn't I? Right. Yeah. Cheers, Phil, for that update. And listeners, I'd again encourage you to uh, check out uh, Phil's blog on this, which is makes for good reading. And it's a good, nice little summary of what's just gone on with this strike. Right. So now we're going to move on to uh, talking to Reed Kane from the Socialist Party of the USA about the gun control debate. We brought you on to talk about gun control, and as I mentioned, you're speaking in a personal, not a representative capacity. So could you tell us a little about popular views on gun control in Vermont, where you live? Sure. Well, Vermont's kind of a strange state in a lot of ways. It's a very low population state, um, you know, only around six, 620,000 people or so. And it's a very, it's a very rural state. There's essentially no urban concentration at all. Our biggest cities are really more like big towns. Um, and until I believe, you know, the seventies, essentially, uh, it, it's demographics reflected that sort of rural character. Um, there was sort of an influx of, uh, young, you know, kind of newly politicized, uh, people from, you know, the, the kind of sixties generation into Vermont, looking for this sort of idealized utopian vision of escaping the cities, escaping civilization, um, a lot of like anarchism and back to the land sort of stuff. Uh, Bernie Sanders is one of these, you know, he's, he's himself a, a, an 
an aspect of that phenomenon. He moved to Vermont um, in that in that period as well. Um, and you know, so there's sort of a, a it's a it's a strange environment. There is a lot of this sort of more traditional um, kind of rural support for um, for gun rights uh, that you'd find in other parts of the country um, that maybe aren't as prominent in um, other parts of the the Northeast. Um, but there's also a lot of you know a lot of sort of your typical Democratic Party. Um, moral concern about you know gun uh you know gun ownership uh gun violence etc um the state is effectively a one-party state controlled by the democratic party um we do have a republican governor right now but uh the republican party kind of functions as sort of like a um a very thin opposition to the democratic party majority um so bernie sanders for example when he was um you know our uh, congressman and now, you know, he's still our Senator. Um, he was sort of softer on gun, on gun control, uh, than a lot of the democratic party would be. And he was, um, that was used against him in his primary campaign against Hillary Clinton. Um, but by contrast, our current governor, Republican governor, Phil Scott has recently, uh, endorsed gun control measures, sort of tailing the, current uh, hysteria around this issue. So the popular sentiment in the state is sort of divided between this older um, or more rurally oriented population and some of the younger, more um, professionalized uh, population that supports the Democratic Party. Um, but, you know, in terms of like my own personal relationships, a lot of my friends, a lot of my peers, you know, they own guns, they go to gun ranges regularly, they support Second Amendment rights. But I also have a lot of friends that think that that's ridiculous and barbaric and, you know, a relic of a, a world that we should want to leave behind. So um, it's a strange mix. Yeah, sorry yeah. to interrupt, it's Alex. Um, I just, you mentioned the hysteria around gun control. I mean, is that sure. something that you find amongst your friends, neighbors, colleagues, and so on? Um, or is that more of a kind of mediatized debate, which you don't find so much? And also, what exactly do you mean by hysteria? Well, well, it, it, it plays out in conversation, you know, among people my age, you know, and, and older for that matter. Um, it's, you know, it's the kind of, topic of conversation right now it's in the news cycle you know mm -hmm. and it's not always in the news cycle there are obviously these events that bring it to the fore so i don't know if it's the sort of or i wouldn't say it's the kind of issue that animates people on a kind of continuous basis you know it seems to be something that comes up and becomes a topic of conversation and argument periodically occasionally but i don't see it as sort of like an overriding concern in most people's you know um you know regular you know regular lives like as you know in in the sense of like their day-to-day -day lives i don't think this is a concern that uh is emerging from people's experiences or problems they're actually confronting by and large i think it's more of a media phenomenon um and in terms of the hysteria i mean you know i think the the media reaction first of all the media reaction to the mass shooting phenomenon which is of course is you know horrible and, and tragic is vastly out of proportion with the to with uh vastly out of proportion uh to the problem itself you know in terms of the kind of mass shootings and especially school shootings they're a very very small part of the uh phenomenon of uh 
you know, homicides by firearms in 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 this country. Um, they don't represent even a, a they only represent a very small fraction of uh, hom homicides by firearms. Uh, you know, homicides committed with um, any kind of rifle um, are a tiny fraction of firearm homicides. So, you know, let alone mass shootings. So, you know, I think this is an issue that is being used. I, in my opinion, this is an issue that's being used to manipulate people on both sides of the debate. And the what I characterized as hysteria is kind of, um, it, you know, it's a, it's a moral panic that's essentially, uh, you know, has a, has a kind of manipulative character in my mind. So tell us then, what do you think is at stake in the gun control debate? Well, I think it's essentially, uh, it's, it's, it's essentially an issue um, that motivates the Democratic and Republican parties in different ways. Um, because it's something that each one of them can use to shore up their electoral base. And it, certainly in the case of the Democratic Party, they can use it to attempt to demoralize the Republican Party's base. Um, you know, this is this is an issue that, uh, you know, this is an issue that is very visible, very obviously there's a lot of emotion going into it, um, but it, it the way it's talked about is not it doesn't reflect the extent of the it doesn't it doesn't reflect the actual extent of the problem um so for example violent crime in general and you know uh you know also uh, violent crime in general including um violent crime involving weapons is uh on a historic downward trend um as i mentioned before you know it's not rifles it's not assault rifles so-called but handguns that are involved in the vast majority of um in the vast majority of these cases, uh, you know, there's there's all sorts of ways in which this issue is kind of manipulated and distorted so that on the one hand, Democrats can whip up their base into a frenzy about it in, in terms of um, increasing gun control measures. And the Republican Party can whip their base in, up into a frenzy uh, using that that, uh, you know, phenomenon on the other side. Um, Wait, but if you're talking about kind of electoral manipulation, mm -hmm. um, What's the, I mean, you know, what's the underlying issue, I guess, that's being manipulated or what is left out of the two, what is left out of the picture if we're only focusing on the two sides manipulating their own bases? Well, you know, I mean, if in terms of the issue of gun, gun violence or gun deaths, like these are terms that you'll hear quite often in uh, the way this issue is rep represented in the media. I mean, these are misleading terms. Uh, that intentionally allied the distinction between, um, you know, homicides and suicides. So the vast majority of deaths involving firearms are suicides. It's almost two to one. Um, but you never hear about this problem in terms of suicide prevention. Or again, you know, the vast majority of uh, of gun deaths do not occur in mass shootings. They occur in, you know. Um, you know, in 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 the course of criminal activity, for example, um, or domestic abuse situations, or things along these lines. Um, so, you know, there's there's sort of this. Um, it's 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 not as if there's not a real problem with violent crime, but first of all, taken in historic context, we have to kind of 
we have to look at it in terms of like, well, violent crime is on a a, a very dramatic decline. It doesn't mean it's, it couldn't turn around, but we're not in the midst of anything like an epidemic, certainly not by historic standards. Um, and just in general, the way in which the issue is framed, it doesn't actually track with the real problems that are in, you know, that 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 people are, should be concerned about. Um, what should they be concerned about? Sorry, say that again. What should they be concerned about? Well, I don't think they should be concerned about this uh, very much at all. I mean, in the sense that um, there are real problems. I think the suicide, uh, you know, the suicide issue is a big one. And I think also, you know, where violent, where where firearm uh, related homicides do occur, they vastly disproportionately occur uh, in black communities. You know, they occur in black communities, both in terms of the um, both in terms of the victim and uh, and the offender. So, you know, that's and that's obviously an issue that is related to um, the higher rate of violent crime in the black in black communities uh, more generally, which itself is related to the devastation of black communities, uh, you know, from the 60s and 70s onward. Obviously, this has deeper historical roots, but a huge element of that equation is the war on drugs, which is essentially, um, you know, turned, a, you know, significant elements of our society and disproportionately uh, the black community into, you know, war zones. Um, so I had a question, which is, I mean, looking at this from from outside, it does seem that the gun control debate, um, if you can even call it a debate, uh, is a major facet of American culture wars and is mainly understood in those terms. And right. the, the gun itself becomes a kind of fetishistic object, um, both for 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 one side, for liberals and for conservatives, right? So conservatives sure. fetishize the gun as much as liberals do, albeit negatively. Um, so I guess how, even if you think that's a, a kind of, you want to get beyond the culture wars and so on, it's still a, a major facet of uh, of kind of a contemporary American life. So how do you kind of get beyond that? Well, I think, you know, I think it's an important issue um, to take seriously, uh, like, why well the second amendment itself i think is something that people should take more seriously i think it's by both by both sides it's sort of disregarded um that may sound strange because there is this tendency to sort of pardon me um there is this sort of tendency to you know um enshrine that right on uh on the right wing but the way they talk about why this right exists is very incoherent if you actually listen to their justifications you know they'll, they'll talk about sportsmanship and hunting and that sort of thing which is not at all what the second amendment was about it's not about preserving people's right to hunt or something like that um and then you know beyond that you know they will they will raise this sort of issue of the right to, to defend yourself which i do think is very important i think it's very important um for people to be able to be independent of a or, or I think it's important for people not to have to be dependent on the state to protect themselves, um, you know, and to be able to, for that matter, to protect themselves from agents of the state if necessary. Um, but of course, that's not exactly the way it gets framed in, in the Republican side of the argument. Obviously, the Democratic Party and, and their base doesn't really give the Second Amendment much uh, credit at all. They're, they will, in their most kind of dramatic moments, you know, say there's no reason we shouldn't just repeal it straight out. Um, the more politic elements in in the Democratic Party will will be much more coy about it. But they, you know, they're more than happy to entertain 
you know, whatever gets political traction. Um, uh, I'm going to just jump in here and uh, put the question straight forward. So why should the Second Amendment be a thing? It's an 18th century law designed for a vastly different society than the one we have today in the United States. And I mean, like straight up, uh, why should a civilian, for that matter, and I be allowed to uh, own a assault rifle, which is a weapon of war, which is used to kill people. Uh, it has a, even though it's not responsible for the majority of gun deaths in the United States, I still, as a non-American who has lived in the United States for many years, find it absurd that these things are around. And second of all, mm. I mean, I also see it on the other side as well. I mean, it's, I think the, for me, at least culturally, the uh, gun sort of uh, way, it's, culture in the United States is very connected to the militarization of the police and uh, American society in which uh, the same sort of uh, people who are, attend NRA, NRA rallies uh, tend to support uh, massive militarized policing, the development of SWAT and other things, even though SWAT was sort of a, got its own history of itself. So um, what is your view in sort of I'm phrasing it very directly uh, in terms of this sort of framing of the issue? Sure. Well, my view is colored by my overarching political convictions, right? Um, namely, you know, I'm a socialist, I'm a Marxist, I consider myself an orthodox Marxist, and I consider, uh, you know, I think you're right when you say we don't live in the 18th century anymore. And I agree with you that it's unfortunate that our society is still over, is still overall kind of constrained by these 18th century forms of social relations and, and ideas and so on. But I don't think it's so simple as, you know, kind of peeling off the aspects you don't like. I think it's a much more integral problem than that. I think, you know, obviously from an 18th century perspective, um, you know, the whole reason that the right to bear arms was, uh, you know, included in the Bill of Rights uh, or a core element of that reason, the, ju the language of justification in the amendment itself, uh, which is not the sole reason, um, is essentially that in order to have a democracy, you need an armed people. You know, what is a democracy? A democracy is a state in which the people rule. And what does it mean for the people to rule? It means that they are the ones that control the, you know, the force that the state embodies. The state in that sense, in a democracy is the armed people. And their elected representatives are, you know, the authority of those elected representatives is grounded in the fact that they themselves are the armed force of the state. Now, obviously, that vision of a democracy doesn't survive the 19th century, and it, it's already kind of um, questionable how, you know, realistic it was, um, you know, going into the 19th century, perhaps. Um, but the question is, what changes in the 19th century? And, you know, from a Marxist perspective, obviously, not just from a Marxist perspective, it's obviously the Industrial Revolution. It's the emergence of modern capitalism. And, you know, from my perspective, the problem of capitalism is that democracy, a democratic society, has in a sense undermined itself from within. It's contradicting itself. Democracy, on the basis of a democratic society, democracy has made itself more and more incoherent, impossible, uh, you know, and so on. So, you know, in that sense, um, I would say that, act, that, you know, simply peeling away essential democratic rights doesn't solve the problem that democracy has become incoherent in capitalism. It just, all, all that, all that really does is in a sense, deepen the problem. So you so, consider, you know, I'm just, just, just to understand you, you consider the right to gun control in this framing is a fundamental democratic right. 
I do. Um, although that's not necessarily the way I would. That's not how I would explain my defense of it exactly. I mean, I do think it's important to to think about it that way. Um, I think the real question is how can we get over this problem that democratic society has, in a sense, become so powerfully incoherent as industrialization, um, as modern capitalist social relations have emerged. Um, and in that sense, obviously, the 19th century way of thinking about it, so if we're going to go a little bit beyond the 18th century, is that the kind of revolutionary transformation of society that brought about modern democracy is not finished, but is still ongoing. There's still unfinished tasks of the democratic revolution, so to speak. And in that sense, um, the state taking on more and more of the character of a centralized, professionalized, you know, uh, police apparatus over and against society is a symptom of society's democratic character sort of disintegrating. Um, you know, obviously, modern police force, uh, the modern police force emerges across, you know, uh, during the 19th century in, in, in response to these changes as a way of coping with dealing with these changes. And so in my mind, you know, I don't think that continuing to empower the state over and against the citizens is a solution to this problem. I don't think arming the citizens is a solution to the problem either, though. I think the question is, what would it take to overcome this incoherent, self-contradictory dynamic where you have a, so, a supposedly democratic society, a supposedly democratic state that has increasingly taken on the character of the sort of tyranny that the Second Amendment, for example, was put in place in part to to check. Um, why has democracy become a tyranny in that sense? What would it take to overcome that? I think thinking about that in terms of the classical tradition of democratic revolution, um, you know, the state being armed against society, and certainly thinking about this in terms of the history of, of revolutionary socialism, the state being armed against society at the very least is an obstacle to resolving that problem if it's going to take sort of the self-determination of society to overcome it. But, I mean, this seems like a very particularly American thing because uh, as far as I see, and I mean, I come from a very different society. I'm from South Africa, which has got a whole different set of problems. But in the advanced capitalist world, uh, in the Europe, in Japan, uh, with the exception, really, of, uh, as far as I know, uh, Canada, um, societies are, do not have any fundamental right to bear arms and they have a vastly lower levels of uh, you know, violent crime, gun deaths. They have a lot. The police kill far less people. In many of these countries, the police don't even walk around with guns. While every time I, I'm in the U.S., uh, I just see you know, cops walking around with uh, machine guns. So is there something particularly American about this, this problem? Because, I mean, I, I, I don't see uh, the United States as any particularly more democratic uh, than, say, uh, a Western European nation or, uh, but even that Western European, it's still this phenomenon of an armed state against the people in that sense. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. Um, let me think about this for a second. Sorry. You know, I think so. Well, just yeah, go ahead. so just to intercede though, and as a kind of, um, I mean, it's true. So, I mean, on the one hand, you have, you know. Britain is the kind of famous example where the cops aren't armed. But there you go. Britain is also an outlier, right? And there are, in Western Europe, I mean, it's still shocking to Western Europeans to see 
a police force which isn't armed. I say they're not armed. I mean, obviously they have, um, they you know there there have been kind of shoot they're frequently in fact shooting incidents and they have specialized armed forces within them. But mm-hmm. the ordinary kind of cops on the beat, day to day cops, um, are generally not armed with firearms, and that's shocking to a Western European. Even so, mm-hmm. so it's not simply a case of um, you know unarmed kind of agents of the state and. Um, it's important, I think, just to be clear about that, because I know um, when the war on terror started here in the UK, um, it was shocking, genuinely shocking to see police with machine guns on the streets, in the airports, um, guarding kind of, um, I don't know, major public landmarks and so on. And it was a shock to see that. And it is shocking when you go to the States to see it kind of with even more profusion. Mm. Um, But it's important, I think, not to... um, at least with regards to at least with regards to advanced capitalist countries western europe and the us not to exad- not to overstate the degree to which the us armed you know the armed kind of agents of the us state are that different from those in western europe but they particularly countries are. you can look at i mean you just have to say the us the police just kill a, a huge amount of people they kill more no they kill I mean, more in, the, in germany i mean you in most Western European states, you have either like a handful or no pol- people killed by the police every year. Although um, the United States is, I mean, obviously a very no, I'm not denying. Yeah, I'm not society. denying. Their... It's putting up. It's putting up third world numbers. I mean, it's putting up South Africa. I'm not Brazil. denying. I'm not denying the militarization of the U.S. police or the fact how many people they kill. Sure. But I'm saying, in terms of the way in which your population confronts the state. Um, you know, in Italy, you have a profusion of different kind of militias who are armed, who work, you know, for the state. Sure. And the same is true in um, the same is true in other states like Spain as well. Anyway, I wanted to give Reed a chance to gather his thoughts. So, have you? Have you? Um, yeah. Why uh, is the U.S. Why is the U.S. an outlier, Reed? Tell us. Sure. Um, well, you know, let me let me come at that from a little bit of a different way because you know, first of all, I think it's important to to. Well, let me just let me say first and foremost, you know, the militariza- militarization of the police is part of the military, part of, uh, you know, part of the war on drugs, you know, essentially, um, you know, it's it's the police have taken on an increasingly militant character, not because society has become increasingly militant or something like that. It, it was a deliberate political policy that led to this militarization of certain forms of crime. Right. Um and the criminalization of certain forms of activity more generally. Um, with respect to the the democratic character, I mean, I think it's important to re- reflect on what the Bill of Rights actually does, right? The Bill of Rights does not create rights. The Bill of Rights in, pr- protects rights that people already have. Um, the nature of the constitutional order in the United States, the nature of the sovereignty of the United States in its own self-conception, uh, you know, is based on this kind of natural rights tradition, this idea that people have these rights. It's not, they're not given to them by each other or by their government. They're given, they are, you know, given by nature or by their creator or however you want to think about it, that people have the right to defend themselves and they have the right to defend themselves with arms and laws that are put in place to restrict those rights may not be legitimate in their eyes. And they ultimately retain the right to overthrow any lawmaking body that infringes upon their rights in 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 their eyes, right? Um, so it's not as if in these countries that you know have much stricter regulation of civilian ownership of firearms or you know complete uh, you know bl- you know blanket pr- uh, you know you know illegality of that sort of thing. Um, it's not as if the citizens don't 
retain the natural right to own these firearms has just become illegal. So you know, uh, I don't. I know that's maybe str a strange way of coming at it, but I think you know, in my mind, the real question is what is the significance of the United States globally in terms of the problem of capitalism? And how does that manifest politically within the United States? I think the United States is obviously the, in a sense, the, the centerpiece of global capitalism presently. And the political pathologies within the United States reflect its unique role in the world. Um, now, that those are pathological. Uh, it manifests pathologically, of course. It's not as if... Um, you know, it's not as if the United States is just more democratic or something like that. It, if anything, the pathologies of democracy are more pronounced in the United States than any other advanced capitalist country. But that's, you know, I don't think, again, that's not something that you can just wish away. I think that's something that you have to work through and overcome. Um, you can't just make the United States more like Canada. You know, you, you can't. It's a completely different kind of society. Okay, uh, this is this is good stuff, Reid. But so, you know, so you've made two points, right? So you've kind of, you've contextualized... You've contextualized the way in which the, the you know the originary kind of cons the way in which society and democracy was seen in the 18th century and how this is put into question or challenged by the 19th and 20th centuries. You've also made the case that there is a natural rights conception um, lying behind the Second Amendment, and those are good points. But you know, if you don't, I mean. Who believes in natural rights? You know, who believes that? I don't even think. I mean, you know, I don't even think Christians believe in natural rights. You know, I so do. how do you? Well, but you know, I mean, how do you defend the? I mean, because you can't surely defend the idea that the we have rights because the Creator gave them to us. Not at least as a kind of as a as a rationalist Democrat, a socialist. So how do you defend? the right to bear arms in the here and now. So when, when somebody tries, when, you know, when they make the case to scrap the second amendment or when they make the case for gun control and you admit the fact of the deep kind of pathological character of us society, you admit the fact of the militarization of the police, you admit the fact that there are these tremendous problems. You admit that the 18th century, um, doesn't provide kind of straightforward solutions to modern problems. Then mm. how do you defend it in the here and now? Uh, Sure. Well, I defend it in the here and now because I don't accept, um, you know, I do not recognize. But how do you, but what, what do you say? Because surely you can't say our creator gave us rights. Therefore, you know, we got to keep our guns. Well, <laughs> well, what is our creator, right? Our creator is nature. Nature gives us the right to defend ourselves. Nature gives us the capacity, the ability to fashion firearms and so on. Um, but to answer your, your more direct question, um, you know, I think the, only way in which the problems, uh, the, the general social problem that manifests in all the various ways, including, for example, violent crime in the United States, but, you know, internationally as well, is by overcoming the problem of capitalism politically. And that means overcoming the political ruling, the political leadership of the capitalist class, the political uh, role of the capitalist parties in the United States in particular, the Democratic and Republican parties. I think that there needs to be uh, socialist leadership in the advanced capitalist countries, and that that will fundamentally change the way in which these social problems can be mediated politically as well as through um, through society. So, you know, in that sense, I don't want to see a state power that, in my opinion, constitutes an obstacle to the solution of these social problems. Um, I don't want to see that state power further concentrate its uh, 
further concentrate its its ability to regulate and control the population and to limit their ability to, for example, defend themselves against each other, against the agents of the state. And, you know, in, in my opinion, you know, what will ultimately be necessary is something that looks at least in some general way, like what happened in the late 19th and early 20th century, an organization of society into a mass movement for socialism with independent political representation. And those agents of, uh, of social organization that constitute that movement are going to need to defend themselves from repression, you know, not in the sense of, you know, we need to take down the U.S. state with a violent insurrection or something like that. But if we're talking about, for example, union struggles, if there's ever going to be a revival of the union movement, well, union, you know, union struggles are violent struggles if they become significant. So, um, you know, can I just jump in yeah. here? So I actually I mean, I, I agree with you. Historically, in the U.S., the union movement had to arm themselves in defense against uh, hired goons and the state were massacring them. But that was not just hired goons, but the military, the yeah, U.S. Yeah. military. Yeah, I'm very. But right now, you have the most militarized state in the history of the world. You mm -hmm. have the most militarized state, and moreover than that, the majority of gun owners and people who are organized and trained with firearms are, let's say, on the right of the political spectrum. And uh, in the United States, I think personally, any socialist has to argue for. First of all, I think it's completely irrational to have any ideas that the state won't absolutely massacre you if you have guns, the state, with the amount of power it has compared to it had in the 1920s. And second of all, um, why not take less assault weapons in the hands of people who might be paramilitaries organizing against unions and goons that come after you? I mean, the last thing I want is in a fight uh, with uh, goons in the state is more guns than everyone. I would rather have a straight up fist fight if I have to have a fight. And, you know, I mean, I come from a culture and I've been in, a, you know, the union movement back in South Africa. And, yeah, well, people get killed a lot and well, just, no guns. We don't want that. Well, just because you don't have rifles doesn't mean there aren't going to be rifles pointed at you. But um, if you have laws that take them away, it's less rifles around. Sure, but all, all we're really talking about is the ability of the state to regulate society, to control society. You know, we're talking about increasing the, the power of the police over and against society. You know, if the, if the people aren't able to have weapons, you know, that doesn't mean that the state isn't going to use weapons against them. Um, so, you know, I mean, I take, I take the point. I think, um, I think Adorno had a point. Yeah. I mean, Sorry. I just I was going to say, like, uh, but surely also there's a political victory to limit the power of the police in the state as well. I mean, which also well, includes taking away their guns. Well, how do you limit the power of the police? Well, I mean, historically, there have been uh, moves for police to militarization in several cases, the ability to have independent tribunals to defang the violent side of the state, uh, to have accountability processes. Those things, uh, for me, constitute significant political victories. I mean... Although the United States is uh, still very anti-labor and anti-union, if you go on a strike today, uh, it's not as though you're being massacred like you were in the 1930s because you, the union movement, even though it's lost some of these rights, won significant rights which protected it from state violence in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, even if these rights aren't the same. Well, I, I wouldn't characterize it like that. I mean, I would say that in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, the union movement was integrated into the Democratic Party's apparatus thoroughly and into the federal state thoroughly through the NLRB. Um, and for that matter, the union movement was completely purged of the last traces of whatever radical political elements it had within it, um, to the point that, you know, now all the union movement really 
does is it serves as a constituency organization of the Democratic Party and in a sense, in a sense, like kind of outsourced HR department for those few industries that still have union representation in this country. I mean, the union movement is essentially insignificant as a political force. It's an auxiliary to the Democratic Party. And it's a it's kind of like a, you know, um, it's 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 completely neglected and, uh, you know, marginalized within the Democratic Party's base. Um, and it has been since the 70s. So I think, you know, I'm not, I, I only bring up union struggles because they're kind of the most obvious example. But um, but the fact of the matter is, I don't think we can gauge what a kind of resurgent socialist politics would look like or how that would manifest, for example, within organized labor or within the labor movement uh, among the working class more generally, but also in other spheres of society. I don't know if we know what that would look like, but I wouldn't want to weaken the... Uh, the potential strategic value of being able to, you know, it's not just a matter of, you know, being able to win in a, a shootout or something like that. It changes the equation for the state if there are armed workers versus not armed workers. It changes how they're going to approach it. Um, they're not actually on, on, in massacre people. Yeah, go on, I mean, on, on that specifically, um, which is a question I kind of wanted to get back to, um, more specifically in relation to guns, is that, I mean, the argument traditionally against gun control, I mean, at least the more radical one um, in terms of resisting state tyranny, uh, is that having an armed populace prevents state incursions against the people. And I mean, if you look at the actual reality now, does that happen? Well, yes, maybe against whites, but not against the black population and more marginal populations. I'm just going to jump in here now. Um, recently in the United States, and uh, some of the more egregious uses of uh, state incursions, and for instance, I'm thinking about Waco and other similar incidents where the state goes in, and often they use the excuse of the populace being armed as an excuse to send a very militarized police force. Certainly in the history of SWAT, it was developed uh, specifically to counter, in some respects, the dangers of armed uh, radical movements like the Black Panthers. Certainly, certainly. Um, well, you know, I think part of what we're part of what we're getting at here is the incoherent character of society, the lack of an organized uh, the lack of an organized purpose for um, you know uh, the or maybe to put it another way, um, the lack of uh, the lack of any kind of coherent leadership in society to address these problems. Um, so, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I'm stumbling over my words here a little bit. Um, um, I, have a, I have a slightly different question for you. Um, I was <laughs> well, gonna, let's. Wait, uh, let's uh, we've got. Sorry. We've got how many? We've got what? You've got to. Have you got to leave at ten two sharp read? Yes, I do. Okay, so um, give us like. So I mean, there's. I suppose there's two things to to answer. Is one of them is this notion as to. It provokes the state, so kind of having an armed population is no guarantee of um, being able to. It doesn't give you any greater defense of society against the state, mm -hmm. and perhaps it even could um, exacerbate or uh, enhance the need for the state to become more oppressive and more militarized. Sure. I. So what I was trying to get at a moment ago is that it's not, I mean, I think we're looking at this issue of whether or not people are armed in like kind of an abstract way where it's, you know, are people armed or aren't they? And how will the state relate to them on that basis? Um, but what we're, what we're missing in this equation is who are these people and how are they related to each other and how are they organized and what 
what are they trying to achieve on the basis of that organization, including, you know, whether or not that involves an, any kind of an armed component. Um, you know, obviously the most significant organized elements in society that use firearms, uh, you know, presently are gangs, you know. Um, if you look, I, I, mean, I think Waco is maybe kind of a strange example um, that, that was, I don't know if that's something that can be generalized about, but, you know, obviously there is sort of, um, you know, one of the, one of the major uh, sources of uh, firearm-related homicides uh, come out of conflicts in which gangs are organizing people to conduct criminal activity. Um, and that's not simply a matter of, you know, the state has to go in there and squash the gangs, because quite often they can't do that even if they wanted to without creating an even bigger set of problems for themselves. So, you know, I, I, I mean, I agree with you. I'm not, I, I certainly wouldn't say that you simply need an armed population and that will solve the problem of the state, you know, tier, uh, con constituting a tyranny over and against society. My point is there needs to be a political struggle to transform the character of the state. And that so long as the people aren't able to defend themselves from potential repression at the hands of the state, that effort is going to be fundamentally impeded in certain ways. Um, so all I'm really saying is I wouldn't support any further restrictions on the right to bear arms simply because that would constitute an obstacle to what I think is politically necessary. I don't think that the people being armed in and of itself is a solution to anything, though. I think obviously it's part of the problem so long as there isn't an actual way of solving the problem. But I think for that very reason, it would also have to be part of the solution to the problem. Um, I just wanted to come, just to come in here, I've got a slightly different question. Um, it seems to me one of the things with gun control in the United States, which is part of the reason for uh, the sort of uh, polarization you mean, you've been uh, talking about, is that um, when there has been strict gun control, it tends to overwhelmingly target uh, people of color in the United States, particularly in inner cities. And there's a sort of widespread criminalization linked to the war on drugs, which associates mm -hmm. that every uh, man, a black man living in a uh, you know working class area, is some sort of threat. And they tend, to, and a lot of people are just in jail and like uh, atrocious for atrocious year, amounts of years for just gun charges. And I mean, I, I having spent a lot of time in working class neighborhoods, both Brazil, South Africa, and the United States, a lot of people aren't even have guns because they fundamentally feel unsafe if they don't go out in the streets without one. Uh, not exactly. because they tend to commit crimes. I mean, this, could you speak a bit about the racist side of gun control in its sort of yeah. actually existing form? Yeah, certainly. I mean, in, in my mind, all, all more, all, all you're going to get if you um, add in, add increasing uh, or if you increase the kind of uh, existing gun control um, you know laws that are on the books is you're going to increase uh, the the kinds of sentencing that are going to be able to imp uh, be imposed on people. Um, include you know so you know gun charges are going to be added. New gun charges are going to be added on top of what other whatever charges people are being um, confronted with and sentencing is going to be increased as well you know you're not going to be able to go in there and take the guns away from um from everyone who has them uh but criminals are still going to have guns and people in areas with a lot of criminal activity are still going to have guns and both people from both of those populations are going to be subjected to policing as they are now and they're going to hence be subjected to increased uh you know an increased threat of um, 
uh, imprisonment, longer sentences, and so on. Um, and obviously, there's a racial component to that because violent crime uh, is disproportionately a problem in the in the black community um, for historical reasons. So, you know, there is a kind of deeper narrative about the relationship between gun control and race. Um, so, for example, the ability for uh, for uh, for black soldiers uh, of the Union Army after the Civil War to retain their firearms to protect themselves was very important because they were surrounded by, you know, by armed people that didn't want them to have any rights at all. Um, and gun control measures during, you know, the kind of Jim Crow period were targeted to prevent black people from defending themselves from that sort of terroristic violence. Um, you know, I'm not an expert on all the ins and outs of the way that this problem manifests uh, in racial terms. Um, but, you know, yeah, I think you make a good point, namely people have the right to defend themselves and people that are surrounded by criminal violence already, you know, if you're a law abiding citizen, but you're surrounded by, you know, gun wielding criminals and you're constantly at threat to be a victim of that criminal activity. Well, if, it, if it becomes harder for you to own a firearm, maybe you give up your firearm, but that doesn't mean the people that you want to defend yourself from are going to give up their firearms. Um, so one, so. one final question before we wrap up, Reed. Um, and I think it'll be interesting for our listeners on a slightly different topic, which is tell us a bit about living in Bernie's state. <laughs> um, well, you know, it's, it's, it's been a little bit, uh, a little bit strange for me, obviously, it, it's raised the question of socialism in a lot of people's minds in, in what I think is a sort of deceptive way. Uh, you know, I think, you know, I wouldn't deny him the term socialism um, if he wants to use it for himself. But in my mind, if what he if he's if he thinks, uh, you know, the path he's taking is a road to socialism, I think that's a deeply mistaken perspective. So it has opened up uh, a lot of opportunity for political conversation um, in the last year that, you know, wouldn't necessarily have been there. But it has been a sort of low level of conversation, I think, because ultimately why people were voting for Bernie, the vast majority of them, at least, is not because they have any kind of interest in socialism, uh, you know, whatever that might have meant historically. It's because they want a better Democrat. <clears throat> you know, they want a better Democrat. They want... Um, they want better leadership in the Democratic Party. And so, you know, I think it's, it's uh, you know, Vermont's a strange place. Um, and Bernie Sanders kind of exemplifies that in certain ways. But it's like a nostalgia for something that was never really there. You know, the, the Bernie Sanders thing. It's this idea of, you know, we need to bring back the New Deal uh, sort of thing as if that was a solution rather than a kind of compromise formation that ultimately didn't work out. Um, and, you know, Vermont has, uh, it's a very low population. It's not a very interesting place in some ways. Um, <laughs> it's where you live. New Hampshire. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I don't know. New Hampshire is kind of notorious for being the libertarian uh, stronghold uh, in the Northeast, whereas Vermont is sort of this hippy dippy sort of stronghold. So I'm more attracted to New Hampshire, whatever that says. Um, <laughs> uh, okay. That's, um, that's fantastic. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Cheers. That was, that was fun. 
All right, so uh, thanks very much to Reed. Um, now we're here, just Ben, myself, Alex, and Phil, um, to chat a little bit about what we've just Wait, heard. Wait, who's Alex? Myself, Alex. Myself, Alex. <laughs> uh, myself. And then <laughs> it's a bit schizophrenic, but um, yeah, I'll just speak in two different voices. I mean, I think the first question we should start with is the last one that was brought up, which is the racial question, because it seems to me that there's kind of racist arguments for and against gun control, both of which we should dismiss. So on the one hand, you have the argument uh, for the right to bear arms, which is basically us white people need to be able to protect ourselves against marginal populations. That's totally with the Ku Klux Klan, our militias against black people being a huge history. Exactly. But then there's the other side of it, which is the arguments for gun control, for stricter gun regulation, are often means of criminalizing marginal populations as well, because it'll give the police more just cause to go into certain neighborhoods, to invade people's houses and to arrest them and to stop and search them on, you know, trumped up gun um, suspicions. So, and also that they would disproportionately suffer from um, being targeted. You know, if they are accused of gun crimes, that it would be another thing to kind of throw against them. Precisely. Yeah. So there's, you know, those are two bad arguments against gun control. Um, well, I have a slightly different formulation of it, and I don't both agree those are both problem arguments. But let me just uh, frame it in a more general sense to get back to quickly as possible to the United States case. So. Brazil and South Africa, two of the most violent countries on earth, which have violent violent crime rates and amount, in terms of both per capita and sheer numbers which dwarf the United States, have both had two very interesting experiences with gun control. One, in South Africa, which was on the verge of civil war in the early 90s, had a mass gun amnesty program in the mid-90s. And this, you have to consider this is a completely armed population, both racists and uh, people who had armed themselves for the revolution. It was vastly successful. I mean, in a country with extreme levels of violence, we got assault rifles off the streets voluntarily. I didn't see assault rifles. There weren't assault rifles in Cape Town, which is like a murder rate that's like Syria. Uh, for like, It went down because of this for like 15 years. So it's possible in like violent cases to have gun amnesties. People got paid a few hundred dollars for handing in guns. Those things can work. And secondly, in Brazil, in one of, I think one of the more humanistic episodes in Brazilian history, there was a vote when an extremely violent country for about whether there should be more guns and less gun control. And the majority of Brazilians said, no, we don't want more guns. We think guns are a problem. So I think there have been cases in which uh, countries with even worse problems with gun violence have chosen different options. But I think to frame it more personally, I think part of the problem is Americans, especially the American left, uh, who argue for gun control, have lost the ability to think we can actually win political victories. It's a, it's like a kind of a fatalism to think that every time that gun control is used, it's going to be racist. We can have a non-racist gun control if we have better laws better, and we demilitarize the police. It seems to me in the United States that any left socialist solution has to be twofold. It has to say that violence and owning weapons that are meant to kill people is a problem not just with the civilians but with the state too we have to demilitarize the police and we have to make sure that these uh private gun control owners and legal to shit like flamethrowers there which seems insane uh need to come off the street and it's a political problem it's like we can't convince people to prove uh, of our politics, we can only just hope to be defensive. We can't actually force a transformative political program without some sort of violence. And I think fundamentally, that's a problem. But there's a few. Th- but, so, so there's a few things I think. So one, um, a couple of observations, I guess, and then a um, response. So one thing that's interesting is the connections, which I think are probably racialized. I mean, it would be worth thinking about this more, but South Africa and Brazil are those kinds of, um, 
you know, quasi, I don't, I mean, I don't want to offend anybody or um, I don't mean you guys, I'm happy to offend you guys, but I don't <laughs> want to be um, mistaken by our listeners. But they're, you know, they're kind of, um, I suppose, essentially developed countries with very particular maladies, um, which make them not directly comparable to, say, Western European states. Um, and one, the maladies they both have are their deeply, you know, their deep histories of racial oppression, prolonged slavery in the case of Brazil, and then obviously, um, you know, South Africa, apartheid and segregation, everything else. And that is actually comparable to the U.S. as well as being, you know, in the case of both the U.S. and South Africa, both being colonial settler societies. And I imagine that has, you know, I imagine that plays into um, the gun control case. So the other observation, though, is when you're describing the um, the stripping back of um, of the number of guns on the streets, um, Ben, in the early 1990s, that illustrates, to some degree at least, I think, Reed's point, which is the fact that the um, it's a process of political transformation. So in that moment, when you had people were optimistic about the possibility of a magnanimous um, victory for the ANC that wouldn't require a tremendous kind of episode of bloodletting or violence or a violent overthrow of the state and then in those contexts it was possible in that kind of flush of optimism and hopefulness um that it was possible for a democratic um you know democratic i guess withdrawal of all of the all of the kind of um, weapons on the streets but it's also worth bearing in mind the way it turned out right i mean um you know you still have i mean tremendous amounts of violence in south africa um, the revolution, you know, in inverted commas, failed to deliver, and you had the Marikana massacre as well. Yeah, so, I mean, although, it's not uh, as if, we, um, I will just have to say that the murder rate in South Africa has gone significantly down since then, at least. It's still fucking horrible. Yeah, right? yeah, no, sure, and I mean, it's down. I mean, it's also down all over the world as well. So I mean, yeah, all of the except, um, except it's, in Brazil. Yeah. So I mean, the trend. I mean, generally, the trend. The trend has been downwards in terms of violent crime. So, but my disagreement, I guess, with you is that even if you succeed in, um, so, if, and, or two disagreements, I guess. The first is I think you're right that the left um, in the U.S., but generally, more generally, is incapable of imagining that it's that it can win kind of democratically, that it can win, that it can persuade people and win people over to its side. And I think that probably plays into the way in which the Democrats um, conceive of their it's you know it's a way to whip up um, their base as reed said it's not it's not actually kind of they don't um think about it as gun control in a kind of realistic strategic or genuinely political way it's uh, it's something just for the base no i think even more so, they, so you could you could go further and say it's part of a larger american prohibitionist impulse a very top-down regulations approach where yeah. you just get and well, I, I mean that was I, the other thing i was going to say mm-hmm. the left is also incapable of thinking without the state Right. So they're incapable of thinking of social transformation or political transformation that isn't overseen or regulated by the state. And I think that is at least, if not more, of a problem. Or rather, it's in fact, it's a symptom of the defeatist outlook of the left is the fact that they can only think in terms of the state undertaking activity. And even if you succeed in demilitarizing, right, if you even if you get your cops without guns and you succeed in stripping back the kind of the um, the arm, the militarization of the state, um, you know, ultimately, it's a contradiction in terms, right? You can't demilitarize the state. The condition of the state is the fact that it uses violent force. And at the end of the day, the state will still be the single most significant armed power, even if your bobbies are all nice and friendly and they just have little sticks and, you know, they don't have handcuffs and they don't carry guns. At the end of the day, the state is still 
that body of armed men with police, prisons, etc. at its command, right? Yeah, I mean, I think uniquely I kind of waver on this question, but I do think that, I mean, if we were to kind of project this forward and look at the possibilities and the likelihood of demilitarization, I mean, you know, the state is fundamentally... A, espe- no, hang on, hang on. I'm, I'm, I'm more actually in, in agreement with you here, Phil, which is that the state fundamentally enacts a kind of preemptive or preventative counter-revolution. Right. And the state has been accruing ever greater powers, become ever more militarized. Its powers of surveillance and so on are ever greater, such that, again, the imaginary revolutionary situation in which the people rise, unarmed people rise up against the state. I mean, that just one imagines civil wars, complete slaughter, you know, completely one sided, um, one sided kind of civil warfare. Right. So, you know, that's not and I think Reed is honest about this. He says quite explicitly, like, that's not that's not the reason I defend gun control. Yeah, that, uh, or that, that's, that's not the, the reason I defend militia, the right to bear that's arms. That's the militia kind of, the Minuteman militia kind of fantasy it, of the American exactly. right that they can take on. Uh, yeah. And, and also, it's also the neo-Black Panther fantasies of the American left. Yeah, that's true, actually. As yeah, well. That's true. Um, so, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I kind of, I, I in principle, I agree with a lot of what Reid said. Um, I'm agreeing with you here, Phil, as well. I end up being quite pragmatic and kind of consequentialist in my arguments. If you're able to regulate guns in a smarter way and take, you know, some forms of assault rifles or handguns off the streets, um, and it leads to a decrease in in kind of civilian on civilian violence, I think that's okay, and I would tolerate that. The issue, I mean, I think the issue is, you know, at the bottom is uh, political principle is being de- whether or not you wish to be dependent on the state for your security, and I think that's the hardest. Um, that's the hardest question in all of this, um, I mean, and it's the one which I, the one which I kind of um, cleave to, and shapes my views on this question. That uh, I don't wish to be dependent on the state for security for my own security. I mean, as having had too many guns pointed non recreationally in my lifetime and seen too much private security, I would actually be happy with a uh, less less racist and more humane form of state security as opposed to the alternative. All right, maybe that's a good place to leave it. That was actually a really interesting uh, discussion and uh, something I haven't personally made my mind up on. And as I think as listeners can tell, we're, we're kind of internally divided on this question as well. Um, this is really interesting. Thanks again to Reid. Um, and we are back again next time in a week's time to discuss Portugal, the left block there, and resistance to austerity. Catch you later. Bye-bye.